Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning Podcast, episode number 92. With neuroscience educator, author, and trainer, Sarah Payton. I'm so grateful to have been introduced to Sarah Payton, a neuroscience educator and author of the book, Your Resonant Self, Guided Meditations and Exercises to Engage Your Brain's Capacity to Healing. I took one look at Sarah's work and website and immediately had 100 questions for her. She also has a workbook coming out to accompany this book this summer, so I'll put all the links in the show notes of everything that you need to do to get to know Sarah, as well as at the end I'll share, and you can look in the show notes, the links to her free guided meditations that go along with the book. My name is Andrea Samadhi, and if you're new here, I'm a former educator who created this podcast to bring the most current neuroscience research, along with high-performing experts who've risen to the top of their field, with specific ideas or strategies that you can implement immediately, whether you're an educator or in the corporate space, to take your results to the next level. If we want to improve our social, emotional, and cognitive abilities, it all starts with an understanding of our brain. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for your time today to share your knowledge and your resources with us. Oh, thank you, Andrea. And thank you for doing this podcast, which is so important to bring together that wonderful area of social emotional learning and neuroscience, which gives us so much compassion and capacity to see ourselves with gentleness. Absolutely. Well, I, I feel honored and blessed to have this opportunity because with each guest that I do um, have a chance to interview, there's a lot of research and learning behind it. And, and the learning, it's uh, more than what I learned with my university degree. So I feel very lucky over here for this opportunity to, to host and, and get to interview you. But so I want to get right into the question, Sarah, and I'm going to go right into brain network theory because it's being talked about all over the place and listeners of the podcast who follow the most current neuroscience research will have heard about brain network theory. Some people might have some questions like, oh yeah, what is that again? And I've talked about some recent books that have come out, um, Dr. Srini Pillay, he talks about the power of the unfocused mind in his recent book. And I've been working with Mark Robert Waldman. I interviewed him on episode 30, and he's been mentoring me for the past few years. And he's really dove deep into applying brain network theory. And I realize how powerful it can be to our life. And just to kind of give an overview for people, brain network theory, what it's about, if we're going to research the brain and we go to pubmed.gov and we search for the most recent studies um, to back up something we're looking for, we now get articles that don't just come back with specific parts of the brain. We're getting uh, the, the actual brain networks that are coming back with the articles. So Sarah, can you go over some of the brain networks that you cover in the beginning of your book and how these networks can help us to understand the world and maybe even improve our results? Mm. Well, what I, um, the, the, the network that I work with most extensively is the default mode network, 
Okay. And the default mode network is, um, is what the brain does when we're not asking it to do anything. So in those moments where we've just woken up, how does our brain treat us? Where, where, where do our memories go? As we begin to move through the day, as we move into our shower or our exercise, those things we're often doing kind of, uh, we, we've done them enough times that we don't have to think about taking a shower. So then what happens? What's going on inside of this brain of ours? And it can be these wonderful moments of that you're kind of gently pointing us toward with the unfocused brain with creativity and harvesting and rest and rejuvenation. But if we've lived through trauma, then the voice of the default mode network is very different. And it's one of self-recrimination and blame and shame and um, like little explosions of horror. Like we can hit 14 landmines that are connected with trauma between getting out of bed and making our way into the shower. <laughs> so so the, the part of what I'm so interested in is how does trauma impact the way we live and what can we do to heal trauma? And Ruth Lanius, uh, an amazing neuroscientist, actually did a case study about a year a year and a half ago, where she looked at the traumatized default mode network. And when she looked at it, it looked different than a non-traumatized default mode network. Like, we can visually see the difference in the way this network is working, depending on how much unprocessed, unaccompanied trauma memory we're trying to live around and I say live around because of that landmine thing that happens between bed and the shower. And what she did, she, she had before and after pictures where she looked at the traumatized default mode network before what I call time travel and after time travel. And by time travel, I mean that we're kind of moving through to the trauma memory and kind of picking ourselves up and going, of course, this was difficult. And, you know, is it okay that I'm here with you? And, of course, you were scared. And no wonder you froze. And would you like a little acknowledgement that the stakes were very high in this memory that you're stepping into? And, and there's a, an, an invitation to return for the traumatized self to return to present time with us. Now, when we first start doing this, it's very good to do it with a therapist. It's very good to have accompaniment. And as we become more used to it, we start to be able to accompany ourselves and to, you know, to notice these tiny landmines that are happening uh, uh, as we're moving through our day. And, and each time we do this, what Ruth Lanius's work showed is we're restructuring the default mode network so that we have smooth functioning and can access all of the beauty of the harvesting, the creativity, the rest, the rejuvenation of the unfocused brain. Andrea, I was focused on the default mode network. How are you doing? <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds, that, that that's right in line with what I was thinking. And as you were talking, my mind goes a million directions because I've just started uncovering a little bit of work with trauma and memories 
Um, specifically, Joseph Ledoux. Uh, okay. He's been someone that, do you know him? Yes, yes. And so he's talking about a lot about how if trauma has been uh, experienced because of the fact that memories are not real or memories are not showing up in the body that we can reverse trauma. So this is a new topic for me. Can you just kind of talk a little bit about that because of people listening that might have trauma in their life or students or children with trauma? Sure. So based on the, the research that was done in in Nepal, there was very interesting research done in Nepal with boy soldiers who had, who had lived through the Nepalese civil war and then returned to their villages. And the Maoists took boys age 5 to 15 out of their family homes and set them to work being soldiers. And the boys all had very similar experiences as soldiers. They lived through having their comrades die. They lived through injury. They lived through hunger, disease, living, trying to live without parents um, and being far from home. But what the researchers discovered was that some of these boys had very bad PTSD and some of the boys did not have PTSD at all, which then leads us to this question, what is it that actually creates trauma memories that the brain is carrying. And the implication of these studies were, was that, that the boys who came home to villages and families that received them with warmth and welcome ended up with very low rates of PTSD. And the boys who came back to villages where they were scorned, excluded, humiliated, pushed away, those boys had very high rates of PTSD. So what this points to for us is that, and I want every, all of the listeners to understand that it doesn't matter what the event was. What matters is how alone were we either in it or after it. Were we received with warmth after the event or was it uh, an experience of being pushed away by the people who maybe could have protected us or soothed us or comforted us or acknowledged us. So that's a kind of a funny definition of trauma because many people are like, okay, a trauma is a car accident. A trauma is being abused. A trauma is a house fire. A trauma is an earthquake. A trauma is a terrorist bombing. Instead of saying, the trauma is actually a failure of relationship. And once we begin to define trauma as a failure of relational connection, then we start to understand why it's so effective to go back and restore relational connection in, in connection with the memory of the trauma. Now, what we need to know about memory I'm sure you've worked with this before, is that the amygdala, that is the home of trauma memories, the amygdala has no sense of time. It does not actually timestamp a memory. So all of those landmines that were hitting between bed and the shower are bubbles of unprocessed, unaccompanied memory, times when we were too alone, that remain 
connected to the amygdala. So then everything that's, uh, that's happening around us is a possible stimulus for the re- resurrection of this untimestamped memory. So if I'm remembering a moment of humiliation when I was in grade school, then my, I may even flush, I may turn red with the memory. I may have elevated heart rate and I may feel so alone and so ashamed in relationship with that memory because it has never been accompanied. Now the beauty of the amygdala having no sense of time is that it, it actually re- receives accompaniment from present time with a great deal of willingness because it doesn't, it, it doesn't say, okay, Andrea, that memory was when you were six, so we can't go back to it. That, <laughs> instead, it's like, oh, good, somebody's come finally to be with me and my six-year-old self. And then, uh, in a way, the, it's almost like the amygdala can relax and let the rest of the brain, the whole network of memory processing, and contextualization and understanding and making the, the narrative can then come online and we get to like make sense of these memories. Well, that makes it so clear because I've heard so many different ways of healing your past by making sense of your memories from Dan Siegel. Yes. And now how you've explained it, I. I understand it in a different way. I just heard, you know, go back and forgive the past. Well, I, I understand that. But now I understand at the brain level why that repair helps us in the future. Thank yes. you. Yes, yes. I, I just, I love that clarity also. I, I was, uh, the first time that I read Daniel Siegel, he, he was writing, I think, in The Developing Mind, or perhaps it was in The Neuroscience of We. He was talking about this moment where he was riding a horse and the saddle turned over and he hit the ground and it was a, it was a trauma and he began to work with it in this way and I was like this is fascinating you mean we can actually heal our brains or it's not exactly healing I suppose it's just like restarting them from a stuck place mm-hmm. Definitely. And so this kind of brings me into let's extend default mode network here. I did an episode number 48 on default mode network and how it involves thought processes that include worries, doubts, and fears like, you know, don't try that again. It didn't work out last time and so on. And Swiss psychologist Piaget calls this our inner speech. It can be positive or negative depending on what we're thinking. And chapter one of your book begins with how we talk to ourselves, the default mode network that talks about our beliefs and our self-talk. How would you suggest that we identify and then eliminate limiting beliefs that we have flowing through our brain? The, the identification, I think, is almost like a lifelong process of starting to listen to our own dial, inner dialogue. Mm-hmm. And that as so we can start out, we start out, we go, oh, I know I've got a critical default mode network. It tells me I'm stupid. I'm walking around during the day and I'm thinking, that was stupid, Sarah. Why did you do that? That was stupid. There you were being stupid again. And um, and so it's sort of like easy to catch those those really blatant messages that are negative. 
And then we work a little bit with those and I'll talk about how to work with them. And then we start to move into like deeper levels of almost like a nonverbal sense of self, which is negative instead of positive. And this also, both the overt negative messages, Sarah, you're so stupid, and the, the implicit negative message of just kind of a sense of shame walking through the world. And so many of us have this, this sense that we are not just right. That there's something wrong with us. That becomes, it's even more subtle. This also is a sign of trauma. This also is a sign of not having been accompanied. An example would be um, somebody who thinks that they are prickly. Like, I, I'm a prickly person and I cannot love. And, um, and what happens if we, if this is the, the, some of the healing work, some of the beautiful work that can happen with language, if we start to notice that we've made an agreement with ourselves, and this is, this is the book that's coming out in May, The Neuroscience of Unconscious Contracts of Agreements that We Make with Ourselves, to not believe in ourselves or to treat ourselves harshly. And we have very good relational reasons for believing, calling ourselves stupid or for believing that we don't matter. But with this example of believing that we're prickly so we can't love, it's like, what happens if we start to challenge that idea? If we believe, okay, this is a negative belief about me. So of necessity, this negative belief is not actually the truth. But I have made some sort of agreement with myself because as you mentioned, Andrea, in the beginning, that, that, the, that the network holds these beliefs about the self. I will believe that because I am prickly, I cannot be warm. In order to, and then we're starting to like, use language and grammar to take us toward an exploration of what are the strange relational reasons that we have for believing that we're, I mean, there's nothing exactly uh, contradictory about being able to be both prickly and warm. I think most of us, <laughs> if we think of the people we know, we do know people who are both prickly and warm. Yeah, that we are complex. What, what's interesting is when I first started looking at some of these contracts that I had, I've never called them contracts. I just guess I called them limiting beliefs. In my late twenties, <laughs> I worked with a speaker and you could stand up in front of a room and ask the room, you know, what do you think of me? How do I show up in the world? And people can pick out what you feel about yourself, the limiting beliefs, they can see it in how you stand, how you speak. It's not a secret. So it's not yeah. like, like you know it and everyone else knows. This is how you show up. And I think the ones that I got told were, you don't think you're good enough. Mm -hmm. And that I heard other people because it comes up a lot. I worked on that for shoot, probably 20 years. Yeah. And and I believe I am now, but probably oh. late 20s, I didn't. And so now I hear people saying, you know, I've got this 
thing that I'm not good enough. My work isn't good enough. And I'm like, oh, I surely remember feeling yeah. that. And I don't know where it comes from. Where, where does it come from? Was it because my parents were rough on me growing up? Or where did these contracts come up, come from? Well, I will not believe I am good enough. And then we, if we actually use grammar to help us kind of go into the right hemisphere and find out what the heck is this construction, I will not believe I'm good enough. There can be many different possibilities in order to accompany my mother who never believed she was good enough. Mm. I will not believe I'm good enough in order to explain uh, the contempt that my father had for me. Mm. I will not believe that I'm good enough in order to explain the contempt that my father had for me and himself. Mm. I will not believe that I'm good enough in order to belong to this family system where nobody really gets to have pride or satisfaction because that would mean that we couldn't belong anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, I will not believe that I'm good enough in order to be smaller than my siblings so that they are loved. Mm. There are so many options that are deeply connected in a very odd way with love. Mm -hmm. So many ways that we try to diminish ourselves or make ourselves smaller in order to be able to belong mm -hmm. to systems that are carrying the after uh, effects of trauma. What, what's, what's it like to hear this, Andrea? Well, you kind of have an idea of where it might have come from when, when you hear that. And then my only thought is uh, making sure I don't do this to my children, making sure that, and, and I've heard you talk about the curse of the attachment theory at a four month old. What about you've got children now? Can we still impact them now? We can impact our children all the way till we're 90 and they're 70. Okay. I mean, <laughs> if you think about this, I mean, here we are, we're both kind of grown up and your folks may be still alive. My folks passed about 10 years ago. And, um, but if I imagine my mother now being totally held with self-compassion and warmth, something in my body relaxes even now. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost 60. Wow. So we, are, we continue to be changed by by our sense of our parents in the world. And so the work that we do changes our children and gives them more energy and more support for their expression, exploration, movement, when we don't have to worry about our mother's well-being or our father's well-being. It creates a freedom and a movement of energy that's so lovely for for kids of any age. Good, because yeah. that gives me some peace. Mm -hmm. So can we go into the default mode network? We could talk about this for days, I'm sure. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, how it's been linked to the imagination. So Marty Seligman, the founder of Positive Psychology, he calls the default mode network the imagination network. and. My mentor, Mark Waldman, he created a diagram, which I'm going to put in the show notes, which uh, it kind of maps out the five major brain networks. And he intentionally put the imagination as the largest of these mm -hmm. networks. 
And he said possibly because it developed so early in life and plays such an important role in child and brain development. So just kind of leveraging off what we just were speaking with, why is it so important for us to understand this network in our brain with our early years of development in mind and then going mm -hmm. through life? Well, um, Matthew Lieberman at UCLA wrote that beautiful book, Social, all about the default mode network also. And he says that it comes online in the very first day of life. It probably is online inside the womb, I would suspect, and then continues to sustain us throughout our lives. So a part, what I love most about being a person who moves through the world, teaching others how to heal their trauma, is that it frees the default mode network exactly for this, for imagination. Because the default mode network is, it, it travels between the sense of self and our memories. So it's able to harvest from our lived experience the things that create novels that create movies, that create symphonies, that create hip-hop songs, that create paintings and drawings. We are, whatever it is that we focus on and learn becomes available to the default mode network for harvesting. So this act of imagination is really an act of harvesting many different elements that we've been collecting that then get put together in a new way to create something new. And um, you may have run across this uh, statistic before, and I love it. In many fields, people do their best work as scientists in their 20s and 30s. But when we're looking at the field of neuroscience, People do their best work in their 50s and 60s. Yeah. There's something immensely creative about the holding the complexity of the human brain and being able to feel into it and to develop the mastery that allows the, the harvesting and connection of all kinds of different elements that then get put together into a new whole. Uh, now, is this coming close to what your mentor has uh, spoken about with the default mode network and the imagination? Definitely. And he talks about how, just like you said, you're either in one mode or you're not. So it goes offline. So you're, yeah. you, you're either focused on uh, your you know, imagination, or you're in your thinking central executive network, and you can go back and forth, but you can't be in the imagination network and your thinking focus network at the same time, right? Right. Yeah. I think this is important for us as parents, too, to know that we can't be both in our executive functioning network and in our relational network at the same time that we can't both be telling our children what to do every minute and be expecting ourselves to have a deep and rich and juicy relational connection with them. 
It's very good for us to begin to understand our limitations so that we start to make room for things like imagination Mm -hmm. and relationship. So true. Like we know intuitively as parents and educators that play is where the learning happens. And, you know, right now out in my uh, living area, I've got a fort and it looks a mess. It's, she put it up, my um, nine-year-old put up a fort with tape. And so it's (laughs) painter's tape all over blankets and it's pretty creative. And I'm just dying for this fort to be put away. But she goes in the fort and does her reading and her work, and she's asked if she can sleep in the fort. And I'm thinking, gosh, I wish this fort would be gone. <laughs> because the, the tidy, you know, let's keep the house clean and organized part of me. But just knowing it's that she needs that imagination to to play and be creative and maybe go and do her reading in the fort instead of sitting at her desk like we're trying to urge her to. (laughs) That's a beautiful example of having to put the brakes on your executive function network that wants everything to look nice and, and you're prioritizing a different network. You're prioritizing your theory of mind about your child and you're prioritizing your relational connection and you're prioritizing her well-being over your executive function in this, in just this moment for this, for this amount of time. Thank you. It's taken a lot of effort. I like tap my fingers as I walk by and I just can't look at it. It's it's hard, but I see the benefits. So I, I completely understand. And so this brings us to the next question. And um, on episode 53, I dive really deep into self-regulation and why it's so important to be able to manage our emotions, especially as we've seen, as we went through the pandemic and having our children often at home doing their school. Um, It's such an important topic and I'm always looking for new ideas. How do you suggest we stay emotionally regulated as, you know, parents maybe working with our children or even in the workplace? This takes us directly into the work of Beatrice Beebe and her team. She's a a researcher who's been working in New York City for the last 40 years, looking at close video of mothers and babies and watching the way in which there's an interplay of facial connections before word before words even come online there's an interplay of facial expressions emotional expressions and what Beatrice Pipi found was that when babies have emotional expressions uh, that the mothers cannot reflect with their micro expressions so micro expressions happen really quickly in like a thirteenth of a second and So babies are in a facial expression to facial expression world before words even really enter. And what we see is that when the mother's face can reflect the facial expression of the baby, then that baby has an easier time with the emotions. So self-regulation being the management of difficult emotions If no one has accompanied us in our difficult emotions, then we have a hard time with emotional self-regulation. This shows up so very clearly in the impacts of trauma, of the macro traumas on 
babies and infants and children, which we see with the adverse childhood experiences studies um, that show that people who've had trauma in their childhood, moments of unaccompanied horror, fear, rage, distress, even celebration, these folks moving on into their life have a more difficult time with self-regulation. So um, what we need more than anything else as humans is for somebody to be saying to us with their face, with their voice, with their words, yes, you make sense. Of course you feel that way. So here we are having an experience of receiving, for example, a boss's contempt. We've got a boss, he's angry, he's upset, something didn't get turned in on time, his facial expression becomes asymmetrical, the, the, the contempt expression being asymmetrical, eyes are rolled, the, the contempt voice is used, humans can tell if somebody has contempt in their voice incredibly quickly over the course of just one word, humans can tell whether or not there's contempt in someone else's voice. And that impacts us. Contempt impacts us. It impacts our immune system. People that are having to live, for example, with a significant other who's expressing contempt toward them, their, uh, their scrapes and scratches take three more days to heal. It takes their immune system more days to recover from viruses. And so we know from the research that contempt really impacts us. So if we're receiving contempt and we create self-accompaniment in that moment going, ooh, that's painful. <laughs> it's, of course you're feeling ashamed and sad and maybe angry and really alone. If we have like this voice accompanying us, an inner voice that we carry with us, then self-regulation happens. And we can kind of feel a relaxation in our bodies because part of what happens when there's no self-regulation is that electrical feeling of anxiety in the chest. And, um, and sometimes, of course, uh, when there's no self-regulation, we'll move into terror or rage or, or some other kind of intensity. Um, but what we can really feel is like, just in this moment, we can all say to ourselves, just think of something you've been feeling lately that's a little puzzling or that you have contempt for yourself for feeling. And you can just say, well, of course you feel shame. Of course you feel afraid. Of course you're feeling lonely. Or conversely, in the pandemic times, of course you're feeling overcrowded. <laughs> of course you would like to have moments of pure autonomy and aloneness, or of course you need more togetherness. Just how is it for your own body to feel the, of course. Um, that kind of reminds me of Mark Brackett's work. He wrote mm, Permission to Feel, and yeah. I've studied him, and we did interview him, and, and it was pretty powerful when he explains that when we can identify the emotion, something that many of us were not raised to do, how you gain this understanding and calmness. And, and you explained it with the amygdala, what happens when the amygdala understands it calms down. Yeah. It's powerful to be able to identify what we're feeling and then perhaps move on past it. 
Yes, and to tie it back to Beatrice Beebe's work, for example, with grief, if our mother's face can't reflect grief, then we stop making the grief face by four months. By four months, we limit our facial expression vocabulary just to what our mothers yes. can reflect for us. And so no wonder we become grown-ups and we don't know how to even name our own sadness because Absolutely. it's not even been present visually in our family culture. So yeah. there's a reclamation of emotions. Yeah. As we... Some of the words like love, you know, yeah. uh, Mark talked about this. He said, you know, we know what anger looks like because mm -hmm. we see it. And you talked about the face of the angry boss. But what does love look like? We know what it feels like, but what does it look like if you're to say, make a love face? You know, most people don't have that in their background. Yeah. So does that mean that the mother didn't have, didn't show love? Um, I think with love, there are a couple different like flavors. So there can be a delight flavor okay. and there can be a warmth flavor and they would look different. And a little bit, this is because this takes us up into another exploration of networks and circuits, Yak Pongsep's work about the, uh, the circuits of emotion and motivation. So we've got feelings that happen and the feelings happen on different circuits. So the care circuit is the love circuit. And when we're in the love circuit, then there's all different flavors of love. There's playful love and delight and warmth and sorrowful love and, um, and, and, um, and very quiet receiving love, you know, and, uh, and exuberant love where somebody throws their arms around you and squishes you. <laughs> so um, I think there's a, a part of this that's like a, a wonderful step into nuance because I think now that I've talked about those different flavors, it might be easier to imagine what the facial expressions are connected with those different flavors of, of love. It's complex, isn't it? Yeah, yeah not so straightforward and thinking about anxiety now it's an all-time high for our students these days and yeah. for everyone else with what's going on in the world and what are your best tips for understanding anxiety in the brain and what are you telling people you're working with on how to reduce anxiety these days this is this is yeah this is very much the territory of yak Pongsep. So what Yak discovered in his research was that for mammals, anxiety isn't a specific enough word to actually tell us, to, to close the circuit between the body and the brain. There's kind of like our body sensations, our feelings waiting to be named and acknowledged. So anxiety is feelings waiting to be named and acknowledged. We often think about anxiety as a form of fear. But what Yakpaksep discovered was that anxiety can either occur on the fear circuit, 
or it can occur on the what he called the panic grief circuit, mm. which is the circuit of alarmed aloneness, the experience of being left. We so rarely talk about this in our world. We, we often talk about fight or flight, fight, mm. flight, freeze. But if we actually look at what are the different circuits that can be in an alarm state, we can be in an alarm state with fear, we can be in an alarm state with anger, but we can also be in an alarm state with panic grief. And this is our loneliness. We often think about loneliness as kind of a still pool that goes on forever. But actually there's an, there's an alarm state, a sympathetic activation state of alarmed aloneness where our heart is beating harder and our blood pressure goes up and we, and we can feel this anxiety. Now, Yakponksep, wasn't a language guy, so he didn't walk around saying to research subjects, would you like a little acknowledgement of fear? Do you need somebody else to understand how much alarmed aloneness there is? But we can do this. We can use our words. He used medications. He used, uh, he used opioids when people to, to, to medicate anxiety. And when the anxiety was on the panic grief circuit when it was alarmed aloneness that opioids would calm the anxiety and he would use benzodiazepines when the anxiety was on the fear circuit the benzodiazepines would calm the anxiety so anxiety is not a one size fits all word it's a word that starts to take us towards self-understanding and self-regulation but it doesn't quite get us all the way there the words that we have that are connected to, um, to upset rather than to clear circuit connection don't allow the body to calm. So as I travel around the world, as I used to travel around the world before the pandemic, and I would teach people about alarmed aloneness and that their anxiety could be a manifestation of alarmed aloneness, I had so many people come up to me and say, I've been in a state of alarmed aloneness for decades and no one has ever named it. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in my life, my body is relaxing just to be able to name. Name it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So would that be your most powerful strategy for releasing anxiety would be to just be with it and know what you're feeling? But to be with it and to track it to what it's, you know, what is the actual emotion. And sometimes I've also found, this wasn't in Punksep's research, but with actual people, <laughs> I've found that people can have anxiety that's connected to anger, especially if they believe they shouldn't be feeling angry. Mm-hmm. And anger is um, something that people use so often um, that results in trauma because it can be scary. But when we really tap into everybody's got an anger circuit and it's meant to protect life, when we start to kind of tap into the life-serving power of rage and to link it to love, which really regulates rage when it's linked to love, then our bodies can settle also because the experience of having an emotion that we don't believe we're supposed to have 
can also be a huge root of anxiety. Got it. This is so powerful, Sarah. I could keep asking you questions all day, but I know you've got another call and I've got another call and I know our time is limited. But in closing, what do you think would be the most important concept that you think everyone should know, whether we're an educator in the workplace or we're raising our children or we're just trying to find our place in the world and make an impact? How can we use our brains the best way we can and guide others to do the same? What do you think? I think we need to step into and embrace um, the importance of accompaniment. That it's much more important to sit down beside a crying child and to say, of course you're crying. And to see what happens next than it is to solve the problem, to tell the child that they're okay, to yank them back up to their feet. I mean, these are so many of the things that we do. We're like, just brush it off, brush it off. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we, we believe when we're doing this that we're serving our children in the very best way that we can. To begin to challenge that idea and to start to move into, of course, to start to extend what a mother's face does with a baby that creates self-regulation and to extend it out so that we're sharing self-regulation in the way of, of course, with you know everybody that we get a chance to do it with. This would be the most important thing. Powerful. Thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. For those who want to learn more about you, they can go to empathybrain.com and they can sign up for your newsletter there and you do have free meditations to improve brain health and resiliency that are attached to your book and they can follow you on twitter at empathy brain and are you in connected to any other social media sites i, I just have you on twitter right now uh i've got uh there's a there's an empathy brain facebook and um and there's a there's a resonant your resonant self instagram Perfect. But if you go to the website, you'll be able to find yeah. all of those. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for all of this. I'm so grateful that I had this chance to brainstorm with you and share this work with the world. And thank you so much, Sarah. Oh, thank you, Andrea. And thank you for the work that you do, um, bringing this beautiful information out to everyone. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episodes. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.